I'm Warren Berkeley with the Laurel Heights Church of Christ in McAllen, Texas. These video Bible classes continue this time in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We have 50 verses to cover. So first, the read-through with very brief commentary at the end of each paragraph, and then highlights of our study at the end of the read-through. This is a challenge, but this method of going through Mark seems to be working very well. So listen carefully as we continue in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Mark 9, 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written. Some, not everyone, but some would still be alive when the establishment of the kingdom would occur. And so the first verse in Mark chapter 9 points over to Acts chapter 2. The transfiguration has a parallel account in Matthew 17. And the narrative has really one point. Listen to Jesus. In the older translations, hear ye him. Moses and Elijah served their purpose. God said, now, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus said, tell no man, because as stated over in John chapter 7, verse 6, his time 
had not yet come. Jesus said Elijah had already come, first as a prophet before Christ came, and then through John the Baptist, the fulfillment of Elijah's spirit and purpose. The next paragraph, Mark 9, 14 through 29. You have that ready in your Bible? Mark 9, 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered them, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Here is another instance of Jesus casting out an unclean spirit, and by now we know the point of all of these narratives. Jesus had power to defeat all attacks of the devil. Whatever the devil sent, in whatever form, in whatever host, Jesus defeated. Verse 22 notes for us again the compassion of Jesus. It is also clear 
in this narrative that Jesus had powers beyond what the apostles had. I know this is a quick trip through this long chapter, but there will be time after I finish the read-through. Let's move on, 30 to 32 in Mark chapter 9, 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. This is a reminder from Mark that at this time forward, Jesus is making clear to his disciples that suffering and death is ahead. They did not understand at this point, but this would be the reality, the Messiah as a suffering servant. 33 through 37, Mark 9, 33 to 37. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That's verses 33 through 37. I will certainly have something more to say about this when our read-through is complete, but for now, this was what Paul referred to in Titus 3 and verse 9. It belongs in this category. It's a useless controversy. Followers of Christ have absolutely no reason to compete with one another for greatness. I think we all know that. 38 to 41. 38 to 41 it's a follow-up. It goes with what we've just been talking about in that previous paragraph. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. I think this goes with the previous passage. The truth is, Jesus had full authority to confer powers on anyone he chose. The one who is not against us is for us. Mark 9, 
42 to 50. Mark 9, 42 to 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. If you want to get one thing from this, Jesus is opposed to sin. Therefore, if we cause someone to sin, that is so serious, Jesus uses hyperbole in the images to get the message across with a tone of absolute seriousness. Don't sin yourself and don't cause anyone to sin. That's Mark chapter 9. Back with my observations, highlights, and practical lessons in just a second. Going back now to the first part of Mark chapter 9. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are passages that the old preachers used to call kingdom pointers. The prophets like Daniel spoke of a coming kingdom. Isaiah spoke of a coming kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ. John the Baptist said the kingdom was at hand. And Jesus said that calling upon people to get ready for the kingdom means repenting of their sin. So if you track all of these kingdom pointer passages over into the book of Acts, you're going to arrive at the day of Pentecost, where Peter said, the king has been enthroned. Repent and be baptized. Those who responded became citizens in the kingdom. Paul wrote in Colossians 1 that Christians were people who had been added to the kingdom, which in Colossians and Ephesians is also called the church. It is vital to see that where the word kingdom appears in these contexts, where Christ is the king, his people, his followers compose that group, the kingdom, the church. Some who were listening to Jesus would be alive when the kingdom came into existence. Next, the Old Testament was sometimes referred to as the law and the prophets, for example, in Luke 24, 27. 
Now the law was associated with Moses, the prophets associated with Elijah. This is significant as we look at the transfiguration. God didn't say, Moses is in charge. God didn't say, listen to Elijah. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Older translations, hear ye him. That's the takeaway from the transfiguration. It's simple. Listen to Jesus. It was a supernatural scene, but the message was simple. Listen to Jesus. Now I've got more. Let's talk about who the greatest is. Jesus is the greatest. His followers, apostles or not, had no business arguing about which one would be greater than the others. That's an immature discussion. There is never a place in the kingdom for the citizens who live under the authority of the greatest king ever to fuss about their own greatness. We are not that great. We are recipients of the grace of God and the love of Christ. We ought to do the Lord's work in the best way we can with what we have without any thoughts of greatness or being better than someone else. <clears throat> and I think the next paragraph goes with that. The next paragraph, I'm talking about 38 to 41, is sometimes called the story of the unknown exorcist. What we need to get from this is Jesus had the right to confer this miraculous ability on anyone he wanted, even outside the 12 and where the 12 were. Jesus' response then was, do not stop him. Some competitive spirit, which was ill-conceived, along with that, some concern that maybe there were others they didn't know about, whom Jesus empowered with this special gift? No, remove the competitive spirit from your heart. That's what we need to learn. Now, I really want to spend some time with 42 to 50. Mark 9, 42 to 50. Start here. Jesus is strongly opposed to all sin. And thus we, his followers, should be strongly opposed to all sin. Now, when you look at 42 to 50, don't get locked into a literal application of his illustrations. Just get your hands locked onto the main idea, how horrible sin is. Just as Jesus is strongly opposed to all sin, we should be. And our opposition to sin must include not only avoiding sin ourselves, but being extremely careful to never say or do anything that would cause others to sin. That's the crux of this passage. Don't sin and don't cause anyone to sin. Now, once you get that, you can talk about the hyperbole the exaggerated images or illustrations. If we take this literally, we miss the point. 
Jesus is not telling us to attach a huge rock to our neck and go swimming in the sea. He's not telling us to sign up for hand or foot surgery or to have our eyes removed. That's not the point. Just as when Jesus said he saw sheep without a shepherd, he wasn't talking about literal animals who had no caretaker. Every language in every culture has figurative language. And the Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek languages were loaded with exaggerations in various images to make a point. What we must do is read these in context, taking with us everything else we've learned from the Bible and get, get the main point, rather than spend a lot of time literally trying to apply the hyperbole, the illustrations. You with me so far? So what we need to talk about is the point of this. And the point is, don't sin. Don't lead anyone into sin. It is so serious. Jesus used these images to make his point. So let's talk about the point, causing others to stumble. Let's get to that level of this passage. Let's consider briefly some of the specific ways we might cause someone to stumble. Direct temptation. Just asking someone to join you in sin. I'm getting drunk. You want to get drunk with me? I'm committing adultery. You want to do that with me? Direct temptation. Inviting someone away from God into sin. Number two. Letting someone sin without any effort to recover them. Letting someone sin without any effort to recover them. Turning your head the other way while your friend is engaged in sin. Read Luke 17, 1 to 4 about that scenario. Number three, needlessly offending someone's conscience. Getting on to somebody about something that's not a sin. That's addressed by Paul thoroughly in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 and Romans chapter 14. Number four, being an example of hypocrisy. Number five, refusing to forgive a penitent brother. There are many different ways that we might cause someone to sin. Jesus wants us to avoid any such proposition of causing someone to sin. Jesus uses this little word that he wants us to understand in verse 43. And in some manuscripts, this may not have been completely there. And so some translations will uh, give you a footnote from about 43 down to 46. Some of that may be there, some of it not. Uh, it's a good thing the translators will give you a footnote at the bottom to explain that some manuscripts they studied did not contain all of this. But the word hell in verse 43 deserves our attention. Many today recoil at the idea, but here's the truth. Jesus talked about going to hell. No, somebody says that cannot be. That's 
an element of myth created by human religious tradition. Well, it's not. Jesus spoke of eternal punishment. Jesus spoke of hell. There's a movie out where the whole premise is to deny the biblical doctrine of hell. But just look at this passage and look at other places and consider what Jesus and the apostles said about eternal punishment. There is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He quotes from Old Testament passages to describe such a place, and that was a foretaste or a representation of the eternal place of torment, the Valley of Hinnom. It was a deep, narrow ravine like a landfill, a garbage dump, where there was a continual fire and smell of slaughter. That's the graphic symbol of eternal punishment, which speaks to us to help us have comprehension of the eternal consequences of personal sin or leading others into sin. So that's Mark chapter 9. Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Thank you.